and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Eliza Henry-Jones is a Victorian author, freelance writer, PH candidate and flower farmer whose previous novels have been listed for multiple literary awards. Her work has been published in a variety of places, including The Guardian, Country Style and The Age, amongst others. In 2017, a trip to the remote Orkney Islands of Scotland highlighted Eliza's preoccupation with hauntings and the interplay between places and traumatic events. This in turn inspired her latest novel. Called Salt and Skin, published by Ultimo Press, Eliza has drawn on her experience of the Orkney Islands and penned an evocative novel steeped in history and folklore. It's a book that explores love and family, grief and trauma, and the way past hurts can continue to affect the present. An utterly mesmerising read that I was hard-pressed to put down, and I'm delighted to be able to chat with Eliza about her novel on the podcast today. Welcome, Eliza. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. And my goodness, what a stunning novel. I wanted to say congratulations. And how are you feeling about its publication? Kind of astonished. It was, <laughs> it was, it felt right from the start, like such a huge story and such an intimidating story. So actually seeing it out there in the world as a book that people are reading and engaging with is just such an astonishing gift. I didn't think I'd get to this point. Yeah, I think you described it absolutely perfectly it is a huge story and as I said before we started recording so multi-layered there's so much going on in it but I think the overall effect is to create a really rich and nuanced story that I thoroughly enjoyed but Eliza I was wondering if you could tell me when it was that you first felt the spark of inspiration that led to you writing this novel I went on a trip to the Orkney Islands back in 2017 so quite a while ago now and It was a trip that I took without my laptop or my phone or even a notebook because I just wanted to have a break from writing and work, which is, you know, kind of shot myself in the foot a little bit there. But we were there coming into winter and it was very windy, very cold. The days were quite short and there weren't a lot of other tourists there. So we had quite a few of the tours to ourselves, which was pretty cool. And One of the things we did while we were there was go on a tour of St Magnus Cathedral, which is the inspiration behind the kirk, the church in Salton Skin. And it's a very, very old kirk. They began constructing it in 1137. And when we were there, we saw the hole in the wall where they used to, they used to imprison those that were accused of witchcraft. And a majority of them on the Orkney Islands are women, 90% of them are women. And something about seeing that dungeon you know it's just this hole in the wall you need a ladder to get up there the floors shaped like the bottom of a champagne bottle so people in there couldn't even rest when they were in there and they also had the hangman's ladder there and something about seeing that dungeon and seeing this ladder that these convicted witches would have been forced to climb before they were hanged just really got under my skin and I couldn't stop thinking about it and my other novels even though they deal thematically with sort of similar things, you know, grief and trauma and family and connection. Um, They're also very much in my comfort zone. You know, they're set in Australia. They're set in areas that I'm very familiar with. 
and writing this story that drew on, you know, real historical records and delved into this culture that I was sort of only peripherally aware of just felt, like I said before, just felt enormous. And so I wondered, when you started thinking that you might like to write Salt and Skin, what did you do next? Did you embark on research or did you sit and sketch out the bones of what would become the story and then fill it out with research? Well, it sort of felt like such an intimidating story that I put it off and just focused on other things for a couple of years. And it wasn't until my son was a newborn, I was incredibly sleep deprived. He was a very screamy baby uh, that I actually began to really actively think about how I would construct this story, how I would actually write it, what I wanted to write. And when you've got like a very screamy newborn baby that wouldn't go down in his cot, I didn't actually have an arm free to type. So I just spent all this time just thinking about this story and thinking about the characters and thinking about the arcs and the place and how I'd evoke it. And in the end, it just felt so, so enormous. I spent so much time thinking about it that I actually couldn't work out where to start. And I ended up actually opening the notes app of my phone and just writing it in verse. Like I just, and I'm not a poet at all. I I read it, but I am I'm not good at writing it. I don't understand it very well. And I wrote about 4,000 words, just, it just flowed out. And that was how I found my way into the story. And interestingly, some of those sections of verse have actually ended up in the final copy. So the very, very final scene in Sultan's Skin is almost word for word, the final little bit of verse that I wrote when I was sleep deprived with my phone, you know, baby in one hand, phone in the other. And it's been really interesting sort of watching the rest of the story develop it around these scattered sections that have lasted while, you know, I mean, the editing process was enormous for this book. I ended up throwing out 150,000 words from an 100,000 word book. Um, um, And, you know, so just watching these huge seismic changes happening around these little bits that just endured and survived was quite fascinating creatively I found oh my goodness a hundred thousand more than a hundred what did you say 150,000 words 150, yeah oh that's a whole book in itself a book yeah. plus. <laughs> <laughs> my gosh well what tenacity to be able to to work through all of that and end up with this delightful and utterly um evocative novel so well done you thank you <laughs> For the benefit of those who haven't yet read your book, can you tell me a little bit more about the story? Absolutely. Um, So basically the story is about Luda Manigan, who is newly widowed, and she and her two teenage children move from their drought-stricken farm in Australia to a collection of remote Scottish islands. And Luda is moving, A, because she's just completely been bowled over by losing her husband and she just runs, but More practically, she is moving because she has been hired to document the climate crisis on this collection of islands. And that is something that she had done really successfully back home in Australia. And shortly after arriving on these islands, she takes a photo of a really horrific event and sells it to the tabloids. And for her, it's around, this is her job. She's raising awareness around climate change, but the nature of the image is very sensitive and horrific and the local community are absolutely horrified that she has 
it's invaded their, you know, they've, she's just popped up out of nowhere and put this incredibly challenging photo out into the world. And that has implications for her and her kids. And she kind of delves into the witch hunts, the history of the witch hunts. And while they're based on the witch trials that actually did occur on the Orkney Islands in the 17th century, I have taken a lot of liberties, which is why I don't mention that it's set in Orkney in the book because I have deviated wildly. And the two children kind of respond to that ostracization by making friends with Theo. And Theo is a foundling boy who washed up on one of the little islands when he was about six and he has no no recollection of where he was before that and he has webbing between his fingers and a lot of the people on these islands think that he may be a selkie it's a seal person so someone that's a seal when they're in the sea and then they come up onto land and shed their skin and their his relationship with the two manigan children kind of evolves and grows there's a bit of romance there which made me quite happy and it's the different ways that they engage and connect with the the folklore and the ghosts and the stories of the islands for those who may not know what's a foundling child (laughs) so just a child I actually I've never looked up the specific definition but just a child that just kind of turns up and requires a home and care and nurturing Theo was taken in by a local woman called Iris who was very actively involved with the church. And he's probably my favourite character, I think, in the yeah. book. He's a pretty special character. And I, I kind of want to get on to the romance a little bit later because I think this, mm-hmm. this makes a really fabulous thread to this book. But as you said, witch hunts and witch trials form a compelling thread to this novel, along with whales and selkies. I wondered if you could tell me more about that and why you wanted to explore these themes in the context of this story. I wanted to explore, I suppose, how humans navigate nature and animals and landscape and how we do that in the context of climate change. And I was kind of fascinated by the ways that selkies inhabit this liminal space between the natural world and the human world and what that means and how that can be reimagined into contemporary fiction. Um, and Wales, I read Fathoms by Rebecca Giggs, which is a nonfiction work about Wales, and it's just absolutely bowled me over. I loved it. And I don't know, it's just something so fascinating about Wales. <laughs> they were actually a bigger part. They're sort of a pretty, they're, they're definitely in the book, but they're a more minor thread than they were in earlier drafts. They were a bigger, they were a bigger part of it, but I kind of had to par them back a little bit because I couldn't jam everything else in that I wanted to jam in. It's fair to say that Luda, Darcy and Min are all scarred by their pasts, both physically and emotionally. And scarring is something that preoccupies the inhabitants of Shawnee, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And Shawnee is a little tiny island off an island. So it can only be accessed via a causeway at low tide. Otherwise, you've kind of got to wade wade across the sand. Um, And on this island... There's something about the light and some people think it's a witch's curse or something something about how the light reflects off the water. But whatever the reason, some people when they're on this island can actually see every single scar that a person has sustained to their skin. So it's kind of like these luminous tracks on, on people's skin and only some people can see them and 
those that can't see them kind of dismiss them. And it's kind of this strange thing that a lot of people are aware of and experience, but it's kind of not talked about as much as you would imagine something like that would be spoken about. And I was interested in what it would be like to have your story netted across your skin like that in such a public way and how you'd navigate that and, you know, what it would mean if only some people can see them, you know, how does a community respond to that sort of thing? And I also wanted to use them to kind of, again, play with that divide between human and place so and nature. So I've got the whales also have the scars on their skin when they wash up on the island. I had I had a lot of fun with that, with that thread, actually. I had a lot of fun with all the threads. I really, <laughs> I mean, the book was, it was so, so hard for me to write. And I kept thinking I, I just wasn't up to the challenge, but I did really, I did enjoy it a lot at the same time. As you mentioned earlier, uh, climate change is another rather powerful thread that runs through this novel. Luda is on the island to highlight the effects of climate change and soon enough her daughter Min is actively trying to do something about it by collecting rubbish from the ocean and almost shaming locals into understanding <laughs> that we're all responsible for this for this event. And you explore the effects of drought and erosion on the landscape and consequently on the psyche of the people who inhabit these environments. So I wanted to ask you, was this something you specifically wanted to explore or was it something that came out of your research or your experiences as a flower farmer that led you to include this in the novel? Ah, I'm glad you mentioned the flower farming. We were talking about this before we started recording. I have a little little flower farm that I run with my cousin and we also grow a lot of our own food. So we've got like orchards and veggie patches and that sort of thing. It's all very wholesome. But one of the things that I've been really struck by since moving here and being so up close and personal with like the cycling of the seasons and weather patterns and that sort of thing is how tiny shifts have huge implications. You know, like last November, we had a really wet, cold weekend and I think hundreds, hundreds of hives just died because it was the wrong time of year to have have that kind of weather and they were sort of building up. You know, it's a time of the year when they're really building up the hives. There's a really large bee population versus winter when they're kind of, they boot out all the drones and they sort of lock themselves down and they can weather that sort of cold. But things like that, or, and then, you know, the they weren't in a position to then pollinate our orchards. So we had a lower fruit yield that year. And being confronted with, you know, a microcosm of climate change and just seeing the rippling effects on a really small scale has made me acutely aware of of climate change and something about you know being on the Orkney Islands and seeing the ways that these islands are being impacted by climate change and the fact that Australia and Orkney are both at the forefront of climate change events but in very different ways mm-hmm. uh, you know Orkney it's you know it's erosion it's king tides it's you know some of the smaller islands are actually there's one sandy that's being split in two just with you know, rising sea levels and erosion. Like this this island is now two islands. And I was interested in the ways that these places are kind of very elementally different, but the communities are still impacted in a kind of a similar way. And I and I think it can be hard to strike a balance in a way because I wanted I wanted to explore climate change. But I know, you know, I don't like being hit over the head with it when I read fiction. It's not why I pick up a book. So I was very mindful and cautious around keeping it kind of a little bit in the background, like it informs a lot of things, but I don't, 
I tried not to hit anyone over the head with it as an issue in the book. Luda, she was a slightly frustrating character, I have to admit. (laughs) She seemed so wrapped up in her own grief and loss that she really didn't see her, her children were suffering too. More than suffering the loss of their father, they were holding on to deep trauma, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's there's these, you know, two children that have been ripped, you know, they've lost their father, they've been ripped away from everything that's familiar to them. And their mother is just so fixated on her work that she doesn't even recognize that they're grieving, really. And there's this added thread. So I mentioned earlier that Luda took a photo shortly after arriving on the islands, and she's actually done it before. So one of the reasons her efforts around raising awareness for climate change back in Australia was so successful was because she managed to capture a photo of her son lying on this cracked, dried out dam bed, looking completely anguished and just grief stricken. And she felt like that he was feeling grief stricken about you know, the drought and the impact it was having on the land and the animals and the community. And she published that without telling him. And that image became a rallying point for the climate events that were happening in that part of Australia. And in my head, I had, you know, for Black Saturday, there was that, you know, Sam the koala, there was that photo of the firefighter giving the water to the koala. And that kind of became the face of that emergency, that, you know, devastating, devastating event. And I I feel like almost, you know, we've just got this these rolling crises now and we almost don't have that same kind of one focal image because it's just this ongoing horrible thing. But I was interested in the way that, you know, a single image can kind of become a rallying point. So she took that photo and Darcy is still furious about her taking that photo and it has completely undermined the relationship that he has with his mother. And what got me thinking about that is the work of photographer Sally Mann and she was this incredibly, she's an incredibly well-renowned photographer in America and in the 1980s she took a series of incredibly intimate, graphic, explicit photos of her three children. And they are, I mean, technically they are masterpieces, like they are beautiful images, but they are confronting, you know, there's photos of them. There's most of, a lot of the photos, they're naked. There's close-ups of their genitals. There's photos of them, you know, bleeding and crying after they've run into a door frame. There's photos of them on a mattress that they've urinated on in their sleep. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're confronting images. And I read a long form essay about her and I was just so struck by, you know, how, how as a parent, do you decide what goes into the public space of your child? What of your child, you know, what of their story, you know, what of the images you've taken of them? How do you navigate that? And who protects the rights of the child when it's the parent transgressing those boundaries? You know, is something like climate change enough to justify a parent betraying their child the way that Luda has betrayed Darcy by putting that image out without any consultation? You know, is is something being beautiful enough? You know, does anything justify it? So I don't know that I have any answers there, but that was sort of one of the key things that I wanted to explore in the novel. And I think I get the sense from Darcy that not only is he angry that Luda published the photo without asking him because I sense that he would have said no anyway but he's so angry with her that she didn't even ask why he was there yes and she made that assumption that he was upset about you know 
climate change impacts. But as the story unfolds, you become increasingly aware that actually he was reacting to something else and that something really terrible has happened to him. Were you able to draw on your grief and trauma counselling qualifications to get inside of the head of each of these characters? Absolutely. I'm so grateful that I studied psych and grief and trauma counselling and had that clinical experience because I think it really changed how I look at things and how I understand things. And I mean, I hope it comes through in my writing. But one of the things I really wanted to explore in it um, that my studies really, really informed was this thing that happens in fiction a lot. And I've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks, but and I've done it in my other books, but often, you know, in fiction, you'll have this character behaving in a certain way and there'll just be this kind of backstory dangled that you know that something really awful has happened to this character. You you have this build up and, you know, most people, you want to keep reading because you want to know what's happened to them. You want to yeah. know why they are the way they are. And you have this build up and to this moment of climax and catharsis where this character finally is able to articulate what they've been through to another character. And it's this moment of them being seen and nurtured and the rest of their life starting. And in my experience clinically and looking at literature and everything else, you know, for a lot of people that's that doesn't happen. You know, people don't necessarily have the words to articulate what they've been through even to themselves, yeah. let alone being able to pull it into a story to tell someone else. And I wanted to have a character in this book that had been through something horrific that he never actually tells anyone about. And you as the reader can kind of piece together what has happened to him. And there's this awareness as the story progresses of other characters realising what he's been through, but it's never articulated. And that was really important for me. That's probably the biggest way that my qualifications kind of fed into the story, I think. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think you you absolutely lead readers to the conclusion of what has actually happened. But yeah, mm-hmm. there is no catharsis and no explicit instruction about what has actually happened. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's just these little vignettes, very like glimpses. I think you've done that incredibly well. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I labored over those little those little snippets of of flashback because yeah. I I wanted it to kind of communicate it clearly, but be really, really subtle and just taking, you know, a sentence out and tweaking a word. And I just yeah. get labored over them. As you mentioned earlier, there is a, a really surprising thread in this book. There's so much going on, but I think at the heart of it lies a really beautiful love story between Darcy and Theo. Theo is the foundling child, as you mentioned, who longs to know his history and where he came from. His trauma and hurts are public fodder. Then there's Darcy, the brilliant outsider who's hiding a terrible secret and doesn't want anyone to see his trauma. So I wondered, tell me how you came to be writing each of these characters and where did your inspiration come from? They just kind of presented themselves. And Darcy in particular, he just was so fully formed in my head and he probably required the least amount of editing as the story progressed and I got to know the characters more. I mean, it can be such subtle things. You know, you'll be rereading your manuscript you know, after, you know, years of working on it and you'll be like, actually, no, this this phrase that this character's used, that's not quite right. And you'll just tweak a word or it'll be something they notice when they walk down the street. And there was, of course, some tweaking and, you know, I added and took scenes out. But fundamentally, he was just a lot more developed early on. Theo evolved a lot more. It took me much longer to sort of get to know him and work out what his deal was and 
how he interacted with the world and the people in it and the animals and the islands themselves. And I didn't really have, I didn't set out to write a sort of romantic love story. I knew I wanted to have love and love is probably the main thread in this novel, even though it, it sounds quite dark when you talk about it, but there's, there is a lot of warmth and humor and levity in it, I think. And I just, when I started writing Darcy and Theo, they just, they had such chemistry and they just fit together so beautifully because like you said, you know, Theo's trauma and, you know, he's sort of like this global figure and everyone's wondering why, you know, why he's washed up and where he's come from. And Darcy in a way is too, but, you know, he has had this, you know, horrific thing happen to him that is just completely locked away. And, you know, on another level, you know, Darcy's childhood has been documented so minutely. You know, there's photos of every moment of his life almost because, you know, Luda's always just been so fascinated by photography, whereas, you know, Theo washed up and he has no, just it's just blank before, before he was six. So I was interested in the ways that they could help each other grow and connect and and it's kind of funny because they they have these moments where they're they're almost at the same place but then one of them will kind of deviate and and sort of nosedive and have issues and um it's definitely a slow burn (laughs) (laughs) so not only do you explore the issue of climate change in the context of the fictional island of shawnee but you bring this remote place alive the ice cold water, the blustering wind, the salt from the sea. It's such a visceral imagining of this place and it's a character as much as any of the others. So I wanted to ask you, Eliza, how important was creating a sense of place to you while writing this novel? It makes my heart so happy to hear you describe it as almost being a character in the novel because that's what I was really trying hard to achieve in it. Mm. And I mean, writing this novel was wild because most of it was written during lockdown and I couldn't even get to Port Phillip Bay and paddle my pale little feet in in the water there. You know, I couldn't I couldn't get to any form of beach. You know, I was landlocked while I was riding it. And in a way, I think it kind of lent a dreamy quality to the way I evoked the islands that may have been quite different, I think, if I had, as I had planned to be back on the Orkney Islands when I was writing most of it. I got a I got a grant. But unfortunately, I was unable to get there with COVID and everything. So, yeah, I'm always really delighted to hear that, you know, the landscape has kind of ended up evolving into something that was complex and active in the story because, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a strange thing to write it so far away from water. Eliza, if there was one thing you'd like readers to take away from Salt and Skin, what would it be? I actually don't have one thing. It's there's so many different threads in this novel. I I find it kind of hard to answer that question. I mean, I think what I would love broadly is for just something in the story to resonate with readers and for them to remember the story after they finish it, whatever the reason may be. Hopefully not for terrible reasons. <laughs> but um yeah, I just I'd love it to be remembered. I don't have anything more specific than that I don't think. Now Salt and Skin isn't your first novel as you've mentioned and as I've mentioned so I wondered given all of your experiences if you had any tips for other authors listening to this podcast today or writers I should say. I think my main piece of advice would be doing everything you can to cultivate and preserve the joy of writing because I think the industry is 
you know, it's unpredictable and it can be challenging as someone who's introverted to have your work suddenly out in the world being read and responded to, even though it's an absolute gift at the same time. So I think just loving what you're doing, you know, and that doesn't mean you, you know, it's not hard or, you know, it's not frustrating or infuriating, but I think engaging with issues that challenge you or excite you or, you know, just engage you in some way is so important because fundamentally, you know, that's why we do it, right? Like we, we love stories. We love reading them. We love writing them. And I think just prioritizing that is so important. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. Eliza, are you working on something else at the moment? (laughs) My thesis, which (laughs) I have just sent to my supervisors. I'm hoping to submit it very soon, but yeah, Salt and Skin was actually, I turned it into a creative writing. Well, it was, it's creative writing PhD. So I've been working on the exegesis. Book-wise, I've got a couple of things. So I'm working on something that was heavily inspired by my time at the Australian Institute of Marine Science up in Townsville. I did a residency there earlier this year. And I'm also really fascinated by the bog bodies in Ireland. So I've been doing some research into the bog bodies, but often I'll have a few kind of stories on the go at the same time. Once my thesis is done, (laughs) on to the next book. Eliza, I absolutely love this novel. I've long had a fascination with Scotland and its history and and I foresee a visit to the Orkney Islands in my future now as a result of reading Salt and Skin. Thank you for a beautiful read and for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Thank you so much for having me. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.